Hello, Joe Rooney here. Back in 2015, I recorded my first pot of Rooney. And since then, I've been chatting to people that I meet throughout my travels here and there all over the world, including Sean Locke, Mary Coughlin, Frank Kelly, Joanne McAnally, Owen Colgan, Shazia Mertza, Aidan Gillen and Kocha Reardon. But loads of people you'd never heard of who have very interesting tales to tell including the sadly no longer with us Boston-based comedian Barry Crimmins, who led a crusade against images of child abuse on the internet, Tracy Carroll, whose daughter Willow has the highest grade of cerebral palsy, Drada Homeless Aid, Christine Volset, a Norwegian singer-documentary maker who ended up hanging out with the young lads in inner city Dublin and riding bareback on a horse through the city streets. All these very interesting tales to tell, and all you have to do is skip the first six minutes of me talking rubbish. That's... Potteroni. This show is part of the Headstuff Podcast Network, a hub for the creative and the curious. Shows are produced in association with Headstuff and the Podcast Studios Dublin. Find out more or become a member at headstuffpodcasts.com. Hello, you're very welcome to another episode of F&I Rap Chat. So today we have um, an excellent filmmaker by the name of Bob Gallagher, uh, best known for his music videos, has done a lot of commercial work, also some really, really strong documentary work as well. Um, huge fan of his work. He's a very distinct, kind of visual, quirky style. Um, you can go and check out his website. Um, in other news, we have... Uh, an FNI event coming up on the 10th of September so it's celebrating 10 years of love hate and we have some of the cast members so um Peter Coonan uh Jimmy Smallhorn if you haven't listened to our last podcast that we put out with Jimmy Smallhorn it's an absolutely fantastic listen um we really enjoyed that one telling the story of how he got this feature film uh, that became the first Irish film to get into Sundance it was called 2 by 4 um, just you know an incredible story of you know having the raise I think it was 1 million or 2 million or you know to get when he needed film stock in New York uh, first time director first time everything about a bisexual builder in New York <laughs> I mean you couldn't write this stuff, so uh, definitely go back and listen to that one. Um, and check out uh, wearefni.com about the love-hate event, and there will be a networking uh, part of that night as well. So uh, be some some big players uh, in, the, in the networking rooms for that one as well. So go and check that out. Um, and yeah, let's go to Bob Gallagher. studio here with Bob Gallagher. Bob, how are you getting on? Good, thank you very much. Thanks for having me. No problem at all. Um, what kind of thing are you working on at the moment? Uh, right at the moment. Um, a few different, there's always a few things going on at once. Um, so I'm writing a feature screenplay, so I'm writing the treatment for that at the moment. And then I'm doing, uh, I've transitioned into becoming a traditional singer, so I'm doing a show at the end of August. <laughs> no way. As a trad singer, yeah. I wasn't expecting that. <laughs> Where did that come from? Um, it's sort of related to the script. 
Right. So the the script is sort of set in the world of um, folk song collecting, like. Um, and then I sort of found myself in song sessions and being sort of provoked into singing, um, ah. which is not really my or hadn't really been my thing. And then, uh, as that's gone on, I've ended up doing shows now somehow. No way! <laughs> that is cool. So, what kind of are you, are you old songs or? Um, like the show. So we did a show in. Um, sorry, we did a show in April for Music Town Festival, and it's one of these weird sort of flukes of the whole COVID thing. Was that there was a sort of maybe a priority of need for people who could put together an audiovisual piece as opposed to just, you know, people who could just play concerts. Yeah, yeah. And so we were given kind of a small budget to put together this this show. Um, and the theme of the show was sort of queer identity in traditional music and literature. Yeah. And so it was a mixture of um, traditional songs, so some Irish language songs, um, some English language ballads, and then some poetry set to music. Um, and then we had some musicians. So, I mean, like traditional singing would be unaccompanied usually, but we had a sort of a band set up um, yeah. for some of the songs. And then we had a few poets come in and do readings. Um, but now we're doing it as a live performance for a very small audience. Okay, cool. Yeah, I actually saw some of the Music Town work. You definitely, like, you're, you have your own, you very much like an unusual career. Like, you do lots of... <laughs> different things that'd be fair to say <laughs> yeah i mean um i just sort of do whatever is the most interesting yeah thing at the time or whatever opportunity sort of presents itself so yeah. sometimes that's documentary yeah. and then sometimes that's narrative stuff or um you know uh, music videos has been a big part of it and then occasionally i have to eat food and yeah. <laughs> <have to> yeah. <laughs> work other jobs for you know sort of corporate jobs or commercial jobs or whatever. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I suppose I've just never really thought of it as a career in a sort of linear sense because you could calculate that in such a way that, you know, if you stick to one very specific avenue, yeah, there's very clear delineators of what, you know, and now I'm this much more yeah, successful yeah. or something because you're working with a bigger budget than before or bigger name artist than you were before or something. Yeah. Um, so there... There is a sort of calculable approach to a career in that sense, yeah. but I just sort of veer in <laughs> whatever interests me. I don't know, like a yeah. dog in traffic or something. Yeah, because <laughs> even your your commercial your commercial work is it, it's interest. It's not, you know, the stuff that I've seen. You've put your own really put your own twist on it. Um, okay, yeah. Sometimes I get away with uh, <laughs> right, yeah, yeah. <laughs> getting uh, getting one in the back of the net, but. Um, yeah, I find that work a little bit trickier because it's not, uh, you know, everything else, you know, I'm kind of maybe collaborating with another artist or a band or something or, you know, it's coming from, you're using your own intuition in yeah. a much kind of pure way, whereas in the sort of commercial world, like my instincts don't necessarily make it past the committee. Right. Um, yeah, yeah. Which can be, you know, kind of frustrating. Experience. Yeah. Must make it all the nicer when you do get a kind of a weird, weird one across the line. Yeah, and I think a lot of the time people do, people respond well to, it's like anything that gets attention, you know, and yeah. then sometimes you'll kind of 
get to the end of the process and you'll sort of show a cut to whoever the client is. Yeah. And like they'll surprise you because they're, you know, the thing that you think they would want to cut out because they think it's weird is the thing that they like or is also the thing that an audience responds to. Yeah. So you kind of, yeah, you just have to pick your battles. Right, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, of course. Um, so what was the first time you picked up a camera? Um, like probably... Know what age I was. I don't really have any um, sort of cinematic memory of you at the moment. I yeah, picked yeah. up a camera. Yeah. I mean, I d- I would have that much more so with still photography than I would video. Right. Like, okay. Because there was always kind of video cameras around. Like, and you know, mm. my godmother I would have you know lived with for stretches of time. Like, she probably was the first person I knew who owned a camcorder. You know, right. and she would sort of dress us up and make us act or sing or whatever okay um I, I couldn't really put my finger on a, m- a particular moment with that but i do remember in i think it was second class or third class um i went to a grail school and we went on a trip to this year in the iron islands and i remember t- i had got that christmas a present of a camera it was like the kodak big blue camera or something this right. really sort of geeky looking blue camera yeah and um i remember taking some photographs of people jumping down these sand dunes but when I got the print back there was one shot and there was a friend of mine was sliding down and like the sand was kind of coming up off the dune like right. you know and like yeah. it was the first time I realised you could freeze motion right. in time and that the, the, the moment I got opened the envelope from the chemist and saw that photograph like I kind of yeah. had a bit of like magical response to that right. I was like oh, alright you can actually even though things happen in motion you can actually capture them yeah, um, yeah. As, as a moment cool and th- when then did you wa- start wanting to actually seriously pursue filmmaking? Um, I think it was probably around transition year. Um, I had a teacher who was, he taught religion in the school, but like his religion classes were, you know, like Martin Scorsese films and um, sort of Italian neorealism and stuff. Like oh, he right. wasn't really, wasn't all that religious. Right, yeah. yeah. Um, and he would have, he had a background in psychology as well, so he would have brought that into his classes. Okay. Um, so it was kind of, it became more like a media class or something, and he was kind of interested in cinema, and he was interested in photography especially. And so he sort of encouraged me to pick up a stills camera and take photographs. Um, and then I think that same year I got my hands on a video camera and just started to film, like, you know, stuff with friends, like really stupid, you know, videos of friends and cutting them to music and yeah um learned how to edit and then i kind of went into the photography stuff first so i did a year i did a year of um photography portfolio because i couldn't get into film school right yeah um and then i kind of took a year off to kind of travel around and stuff yeah. and then yeah it was kind of late enough that i got into the film course and kind of looked at it seriously yeah. it wasn't that i sort of knew i had you know had to become a filmmaker yeah yeah um at that time probably stood to you um yeah i mean i probably had a slightly more formed sense of self i think I'd yeah. like i think traveling especially was probably um important in terms of my confidence i think if i'd gone straight into college yeah i would have kind of shrunk into the back right. of the class i think right yeah yeah um where had you gone traveling 
Um, traveled a bit around Europe and then I got to the States and spent three months traveling around on um, Amtrak and uh, Greyhound buses. And Amazing. And just like meeting strange <laughs> characters. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and everyone, you know, like you'd meet people on a bus and they would just tell you their entire life story. So it was very like rich in terms of um, just kind of meeting different types of people and kind of hearing people's stories. But then also... I think it forced me to be a bit more outgoing anyway. Right. You know, because I would have been very, very shy even after, right. you know, finishing school and even after the first year of college that I think um, I sort of needed to yeah. be put in a situation where yeah. I had to talk to people and I had to kind of yeah. make friends and that kind of thing. Yeah. America's kind of a great place for shy people anyway. <laughs> it just talk to you no matter what. <laughs> yeah, and it's, uh, especially like, you know, I spent a bit of time in New York then yeah. um, since... And it's just like, I mean, in terms of like documentary, it's just like so easy because people yeah. are just so forthcoming with yeah. their story. And, you know, not only that, but like everyone seems to just have an incredible story. You know, yeah. um, I suppose there's something in the in the nature of people who sort of like managed to survive living in New York that they just must have gone through a lot to right. still be there. Or, yeah. you know, they have some like interesting sort of origin to why they're there. Yeah, yeah. And you, you'd moved there recently, or was it just before the pandemic? It was for just a while? before the pandemic, yeah. And then uh, didn't last. That <laughs> I mean, I lasted the start of the pandemic. Yeah. Um, what a terrible time! So was it literally like twenty twenty, or had you been there a bit before it all happened? I've been there. I think I think I got over in October. Okay. And then I come back for a week, and then I went back again. Yeah. I think the start of December. Yeah. Um. With plans of kind of staying for a while, and yeah. then was there any specific project you were working on, or just? Um, I had been sort of filming on and off with a friend of mine who, um, so he turned a hundred during the pandemic, and so okay. I had been filming interviews with him for a few years at this point. Like, right. So anytime I was in New York, I would go and visit, like, and hang out, and he'd tell me stories, and I'd take yeah. them. Like. Yeah. And then, so his birthday was in April. And, you know, around the time, I think it was around like March 13th or whatever it was. Yeah. That, you know, it was looking like, you know, it was time to get out. Right. Um, and I ended up staying because I wanted to be there with them for his birthday and I wanted to kind of finish documenting that. And, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I stayed. And it, it was good because I had a focus. Like, I had a, you know, I had a reason yeah. to stay that was very specific. Yeah. Um, and I, I kind of was back and forth a, a bit about, you know. What was what was the right thing to do? And you know, at that point, like we thought, um, you know, there were flights would stop flying, and yeah, like an airplanes yeah. would, you yeah. know, wouldn't be in the sky anymore. But also, you think, oh well, I'll go back for a while, and then I'll come back in a few months or when it's all calmed down yeah. or whatever. Yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah, I decided to stay, and I spent his hundredth birthday with them and filmed um, the day. Like he had a like, sort of party on Zoom. Right. Um, you know, and he's like, "Oh, these people on the television <laughs> are saying wishing me happy birthday." Um, and I'm glad I stayed because it was such a, you know, it was interesting to be there with them yeah. for that moment, and also to have, you know, like it's more kind of interesting to explore, say, a phenomenon like the pandemic through someone's very personal story, mm. like, like how did it affect his life, and yeah. also he had survived the Spanish flu as well, so. He, yeah, you know, yeah. Has his frame of reference for this stuff is, you know, um, much broader. So 
it was an interesting person to be with yeah. for that experience as well. But then, you know, even he talked about um, he had worked with Orson Welles in um, the studio when they did the War of the Worlds. Wow. So he had been the photographer's assistant. Right. And, uh, you know, he and he, was, he would talk about that. And he was like, you know, people went crazy in War of the Worlds. And everyone thought, you know, aliens were coming down in from the sky and New Yorkers were like losing their minds. And he's like, they're losing their minds again now in the same way. You know, people just don't know okay. what yeah. to do. Yeah. Um, because the belief, if something was on the radio, then right, that was, that was news, that was gospel, right? Yeah, yeah. and I mean, I think Orson Welles sort of later regretted having done it, but he didn't think people would fall for it. All right, yeah. Um, but like Vincent was <laughs> talking about, they were taped it like, and then him and one of like the photographer he was working for, I think his name was Joe Burns, they went out to get coffee, like. And Vincent orders, and like the waiter ran out of the coffee shop, and like Vincent's sitting there going, "Like oh, these idiots," <laughs> <laughs> um, and he couldn't believe that people were, you know, freaking out about it. Yeah, yeah. But I did actually find a photograph. I went like looking online, just like Google image search, to see, like, just on the off chance he was in any photographs taken in the studio, and there's actually a photograph of him, and it's uh, Orson Welles is sort of standing up on top of the steps. Yeah. And he's addressing all the cast who are all standing in a group together holding their scripts. And then Vincent, for some reason, is just directly below Orson Welles. Like, no way. sort of posed. I don't know. I wonder if maybe the photographer just got him to pop into the frame just to fill up the space or something. Right. You know? yeah, um, yeah. Yeah. Like, there's no good reason why he should be there. But, like, his entire life is just fluke after fluke. Okay. And, you know, he sort of has this recurring theme of, like, how lucky he is. And, you know, he was sent to Japan in World War Two, but never had to fire a shot. Okay. Um, like, it's just all these sort of fortuitous events that have occurred. Yeah. Um, and so, in a way, like, that the sort of pandemic played into that, where, because we were really worried about him, and, like, you know, yeah. we were really worried about, like, getting him food and right. making sure everything, <laughs> you know, was, yeah. if he used a plastic spoon, you know, had to be wiped down and everything. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, I mean, even the fact that he, he managed to make it through, yeah. That situation as well. He's yeah. 101 now. That's amazing. <laughs> that is so incredible. And how did you meet him? Um, I met him through a friend of mine um, who had overheard him in a coffee shop. Um, he's deaf, so he shouts right. quite loudly. Yeah. Um, and I think my friend overheard him talking about Cuba and he was interested in going to Cuba and you know, he starts talking to Vincent and Vincent's like, do you smoke weed? <laughs> and like, my friend's like, yeah. And he's like, okay, come upstairs. And then uh, <laughs> from upstairs and showed him all these sort of notebooks of photographs and wow. then I think I, th I think it was 2015 I was over yeah um, my friend Lewis was like you have to meet this guy Vincent like yeah um, and uh, for literally the first thing when I went in he was like okay so your friend probably wants a story and I was like yeah sure and he's like okay I'll tell you a sex story and like <laughs> just sort of launches it like he's just got you know, like a whole life's worth of amazing, amazing yeah. stories. Yeah, because yeah. he was, he was in amongst a lot of like literary characters in like Greenwich Village throughout the sort of fifties. Right. You know, like the reason he smokes weed is because he, like, um, Charlie Parker gave him the advice that he should smoke a little bit in the morning and a little bit at night. Like, you know. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then you know, like the Orson Welles thing. He's just got like endless stories and like I'll go over and spend an afternoon with them or something yeah and there'll always be some nugget of information yeah. that I haven't come across before or he'll find some photograph of himself with yeah. somebody like 
And do you know what the what is there a project or are you just kind of documenting mm-hmm. as you go along? Yeah, um, I had worked with an editor here when I got back. It, it kind of took me a while to go back into any of the footage that I took mm. the whole time I was there for various things. Um, and in a weird way, I think having something to do, like having something to film and having a project kind of kept me relatively sane for the, fir- <laughs> the first portion. Right, yeah, Because yeah. I had, like, you know, a very defined focus. And then I came back to Ireland then in May and just couldn't, like, just the last thing I wanted to do was look back at stuff yeah. that I'd shot in New York. Like, Right, yeah. Um, so I only kind of came back around to it recently and I did work with um, an editor, Luke Byrne, and I spent a couple of days just going through all the footage and trying to figure out what's the narrative thread that sort of yeah. puts everything together. Because he, he, he can't really, as much as he's very entertaining, you know, it's, it's not a film if it's just, and now here's a story, and yeah, now here's a yeah. story. Yeah. Um, so we're trying to find what the, the structure of that is. And basically, um, it's sort of the theme would be like him. He just overcomes whatever situation he's in through um, sheer optimism, basically. Right. Like he just because even like the, the, the pandemic, like he was quite worried about it. And he was, I think, initially quite upset that he had to cancel his birthday. So he had booked like a hall and he was going to have, I think, 100 people come. And he was going to because he had been a yeah. dancer and like was one of his careers right he wanted to dance um for people and uh he was a bit down about cancelling and then uh after his birthday the zoom party you know i interviewed him and i was like you know how do you feel about it now and he was like oh that couldn't have gone any better yeah you know yeah. and it's just like he's able to switch a gear in his brain to like the most positive perspective so we landed on the title um go where happiness is which is one of these things that he says, right. and it, which he sort of vaguely attributes to like, you know, there's a Chinese saying, go where happiness is. I've not been able to find the <laughs> saying. <laughs> so I think he might have maybe made it up. Yeah. But yeah. Uh, we thought that was a good, good title. But it really? sort of yeah. condenses what he's about, really. Yeah. Amazing. And I guess is New York is just full of these characters. Yeah. Um. I don't know what it is about or maybe it's the, the sheer volume of people that when you pay attention to somebody and they have like an audience yeah they want to tell you yeah. their story yeah. um i like i don't think i would have the same success with people here you know, i think people are a bit more mm. um like you could know somebody for years and then like someone else will tell you like oh you know that person yeah. invented you know some yeah, yeah. very famous invention but they would never talk about it themselves yeah whereas i think in in new york especially yeah it'll be within the opening minute of the conversation right. the person the person would alert you to the most interesting thing about them yeah maybe that's to distinguish themselves from just yeah. like the sheer volume of other people that are around you know yeah even the way people dress is much more like to grab attention yeah. in a way that you wouldn't see here like you know? yeah 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 it's something talk a lot about with documentary here like when you do get one of those kind of strange and unfictions crazy stories here it's all the more it's kind of almost more special but there's a reason why you know Louis through and all this they just go to america with their cameras like, you know? yeah yeah um i'm not yeah i'm not sure what that is maybe it's because here you're not you're not really supposed to demonstrate your um exceptional qualities or something like it's sort yeah. of considered to be in bad taste whereas yeah. there it's like people just don't have that 
hang up like so they're like more than happy to tell you about all the amazing things they've done yeah um yeah because i don't think i've really i've not really made any documentaries here in the same way as in like not about characters that i've you know just sort of happened upon yeah um like the only documentaries i've made really were in cuba or in the states and it's maybe just because as well like i'm not really because i'm kind of shy as well yeah. it makes it much easier for me to you know if someone is like get out your camera you know yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> um because it doesn't i don't feel like i'm intruding um because the person sort of you know they want you there and they know they you know that they want themselves to be sort of documented in some way yeah, yeah. um either because they're proud of what they're doing or they're proud of their life yeah the thing in cuba actually um cause i think there's a couple other filmmakers on it i think it was tj on that but what was it how did it how did it come about and uh, what was it like i think tj did it the following year in peru i think okay um but basically this spanish group have been running workshops with um abbas kirastami and i think they have been up until that point i think they had taken place in spain mm. um and then kirastami died and then Herzog took over. Um, I think he only intended to do it for one year, and it was kind of to fill in the gap yeah. because uh, Kirsami had died. Yeah, and he, I think he decided on Cuba. I think he just thought Cuba was an interesting place yeah. to throw a bunch of filmmakers. Yeah. Um, so I think that was his idea, and then we basically had ten days to come up with an idea shoot it, edit it, and present it back to him. Um, and then, but you weren't allowed to really have a plan coming into it. Because okay. we didn't know what the sort of brief would be or what whether he wanted fiction yeah. or documentary. Or, yeah. Um, but it, it was on, it's in the EICTV, which is um, a film school. It's about an hour and a half from Havana, and it's sort of in an old military base. Right. I think it's technically not considered Cuban soil. And so you have to hand over your passport when you go in. Like the whole experience is very, very strange. Yeah. But it was a bit like being in like an army camp for filmmaking. Like you'd wake up and, you know, whatever, seven every morning and go and eat like pretty tasteless egg breakfast in this canteen. And then <laughs> you would pack up your stuff and get the bus into town. And then you'd have to try and just figure out what to film or right. and make it up as you go along. Like I don't speak Spanish. So it was was tricky because we were in a, a rural area and there weren't really that many english speakers so i got lucky and then i happened upon joel who's the subject of my film like and he was like a fluent english speaker and actually the first thing really you know when when i met him and he asked me where i was from i was like ireland and he's like oh yeah do you know george bernard shaw and i was like what a of all the sort of <laughs> Famous characters, um, quite an obscure reference to make. Yeah, and he knew about hurling as well, which I was like, that's bizarre because like you know people in England don't know, yeah, yeah. don't know about hurling. Like, yeah, um, it's mad. It's certain certain place they're quite outward looking. Remember, living in Dubai and but Bangladeshi people for some reason they would know, they'd be able to name like, but not just like Co Michael Collins, but like Arthur Griffith and all these people. Like, I wonder maybe with the communism with I don't know they were kind of quite outward looking did you find that or um 
To a point. I mean, I was, I was surprised how open people were. You know, they would let, invite you into their house or, you know, they'd see you have a car and be like, oh, you know, my son is a breakdancer or something. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. And people were very forthcoming that way. But the second you got to anything remotely political, right. people would just say, my friend, Cuba is Cuba. And that's it. Right. Um, and there was a few instances, not so much in mine, in my film, but with other filmmakers where they had filmed stuff with people and then the people involved said, like, can you please just not, you know, please don't use this clip or please don't show this thing. Yeah. Because um, they were afraid of getting in trouble. Um, I mean, I thought it was interesting that we weren't, there didn't seem to be any anybody checking on what we were doing. Yeah. I think we were on, possibly because we weren't on journalism visas. Right. But I would have thought, you know, the powers that be would maybe be a bit skeptical of Herzog coming in. <laughs> 50 people with cameras. Yeah. Um, but maybe we just were kind of under the radar. Um, and was it just something that you'd applied for? Yeah, yeah. I think I just saw it on Facebook. Yeah, uh, I probably thought it was maybe not even real, or you know, I, yeah. I was like, mm, this sounds kind of made up, like yeah, yeah. someone's gonna ask me for money or something. <laughs> um, and then, yeah, like I think I got it a quite short notice, so I just had to, I just took out a loan to go, like because it was you know, to pay for like flights and accommodation, and then yeah, um, they like they basically supplied everything, so you just paid, I think, it was like five grand or something, yeah, um. For the whole thing, um, which like definitely for the experience was you know it was definitely worth it. Like, yeah, yeah, like yeah, I'm really glad I did it. Yeah. And was there any kind of nuggets that you picked up off Werner? Um. Yeah, I mean it's. <laughs> so I did his whole masterclass. Did I, you? <laughs> I really enjoyed it, but uh, it's not the most practical. It's like you must read this ancient. Icelandic poetry before you make any film. Yeah, he's <laughs> mad about this Codex Reginus from Iceland. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, like everything he says is kind of gold anyway. Um, so you kind of, like it's very, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, like there's a lot of depth in everything that he says. Yeah. And it's not very, yeah, it's not sort of instructive in the sense of like, technicality i mean the the main thing that i got from it really was um i early on i so i met this guy yoel who was the barber in this town yeah but then i went to his barber shop and he's got these like oil paintings all over the wall and they're sort of like weird sort of psychosexual <laughs> like, <laughs> like bonkers looking oil paintings these like very sort of voluptuous women and then sort of like penis shaped fish and all the sort of like <laughs> you know pretty wild stuff for the local barber shop like um and anyway then he he sort of said explained that i was trying to make a film and i was looking for a barber shop to film it in because i had originally conceived of doing like a drama thing and then i was like now that i'm here though <laughs> i was like like i wouldn't believe this room was a barber shop if i saw it in a film like yeah. he'd just be so distracted by the paintings like um and I was like, I don't know if this will actually work. Um, and then he was like, oh, do you need an actor? And I was like, well, can you act? And he was like, no, but I'll give it a try. Yeah. Um, and I was like, have you acted before? And he was like, my friend, I've never even seen a camera before. Um, 
And then he was like, do you have your camera with you right now? And I was like, yeah, yeah. So I pulled it out. And he just, he was like, hit record. I did. And he just started talking straight away. And he goes, like, it's the first line of the film. He says, um, there was the Latin American writer, Mar uh, Gabriel Marcia Marquez, says that the uh, barber of a small town must be a philosopher and the barber of a big city must be a scientist. And then he sort of laughed to himself. But he did it into the lens, which is kind of interesting. Yeah. Um, and I was like, God, this guy is just absolute gold. Like, yeah. Um, like so confident and so good on camera. And then uh, basically like that night went home and I cut up just the footage that I shot that day and I, I went and I showed um, I showed her song the next day, you know, very like timidly went up to him uh, and had to like pull out because we were kind of based in this like town square. Like, so he would just hang out in the town square in the sun. Right. While we went off and film, yeah, and uh, then we had to like sort of huddle under a jacket to look at the computer screen, and uh, you know, and I was like, oh, the sound mix is shit, and you know, it's not properly edited yet, or anything. you know, it's just some I wasn't planning to film, and then I shot this footage, and he was like, but you shoot it beautifully, <laughs> and like <laughs> it was like the most sustaining thing I'd ever heard, yeah, um, and uh, then. You know, I was chatting to him about the paintings, and I was like, you know, this the, the stuff itself is just so so interesting. I was like, the the thing that really is strange to me is none of the other customers ever comment on it, and no one ever, no one acknowledges it. But you can see people coming in, they sit down in the chair, and they kind of look around the room, kind of you know, not quite knowing where to look or you know, yeah, what to be shocked by, um, and he doesn't talk about the paintings. So it's sort of this giant elephant in the room that the walls are completely covered floor to ceiling in like bonkers. Yeah. Sort of psychedelic art. And um, Herzog said, um, you know, he was like, when pick the right customer and tell the customer to ask him or tell him to ask the customer if he'd buy one of his paintings. And I kind of thought, well, I don't know about, you know, making customer say a line of dialogue or you know making him give yeah. feeding him lines of dialogue to say yeah and I was like you know it's a documentary or whatever I, I, I had you know maybe a kind of uh, more like sort of purist concept of what documentary was from you know when you in college yeah um, you know you kind of learn about cinema verite etc etc yeah and uh it's like, oh, I just think it might stylistically be a bit weird to suddenly have, you know, if they can't act, I'm giving them long the dialogue. And he was like, he was like, just make sure you pick the right person like, and get the customer to say, oh, no, I couldn't hang this in my mother's house. And he thought this line was like hysterical. <laughs> um, so I was like, oh, well, sure. I'm like, I mean, I think he's the, the maestro. Like, I'm not going <laughs> to not do it. Yeah. Um, and it was a, such a brilliant piece of direction because basically what happened was like I said to you out like okay next I'm going to pick a customer and I, you say like ask him would he like to buy the painting and then the customer is going to say like oh no 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 like I couldn't hang this in my mother's house and then a guy came in who I just I don't know just the look of him and just like the way Yoel had kind of ha like he had shaved his head but he kind of half shaved it like it's just such a, a because I was filming basically, uh, you know, different hairstyles he was doing and like, yeah. interviewing the little bits with different customers. And this guy, just he'd gone such a weird way about cutting this guy's hair that just already looked pretty comical. Like, And uh, 
So I was like, okay, so now you, you, you know, ask this guy, would you like to buy one? And the guy had already been sort of like looking around, you know, a bit flummoxed by the whole scenario anyway. And uh, anyway, did did a take and the guy was not very good. And then we did another take. And I was like, I don't, okay, I don't think this works. Then the third take, he was actually quite good. Like, and like everyone in the background was sort of like, there was people just hanging around outside, like laughing and stuff. Um, but what it did was it kind of gave him license then to um, just have conversations with people about the painting. And it was bizarre because obviously no one had ever asked him before. And there was a guy, Pedro, this old man who came in to get his like eyebrows trimmed. And, uh, and like, Yoel then starts, every time someone came in, he was like, my friend, you like my paintings? And like, this guy is like, you know, looking around, mm. cautiously going like, well, it depends, like, who's the painter? And you know, I was like, me, I'm the painter. And your man's like, bullshit. Like, um, <laughs> he is like, I thought you were just selling them for someone else. And then he's like, oh, if I'd known you were a painter, I don't think it's actually in the film, mm. this line, but there's, you know, he kind of goes like, ah, oh, you know, I commissioned somebody to paint a portrait of Charlie Chaplin for me, you know, shit. Um, <laughs> I wish I had known you were a painter. I would have hired you. And like, the thing was like, it would get to a point where no one could really, no one could really engage with them about his painting to the level that he would have liked. Right. Um, and even, you know, pe people were kind of go like, oh, okay, that's very interesting. Anyway, three back insides. Or, yeah, you know, at yeah. one point, like, a kid comes in and the kid's like, what do you know about painting? You don't know anything. <laughs> um, and so he doesn't have a very satisfying kind of reaction from an audience or anything to, to his work. Um, and I think part of his participation in the film was, you know, he was very interested in the idea that people outside of Cuba would see his painting. Like, mm. um, and even just stuff like he, you know, at one point I mentioned like Egon Schiele. I was like, oh, this kind of, kind of some of the stuff kind of reminds me of his painting. And he was like, oh, you know about Egon Schiele? And he was like, I've never met anybody who knew about his painting before. Yeah. Um, and uh, I think he was just very excited about the idea that maybe people would react to his stuff. I tried to get Herzog to come in <laughs> I offered to pay for his haircut. <laughs> <laughs> he thought about it very um, solemnly for about 30 seconds. And then he said, oh, you know, I could, if, if it was just me and you in Cuba, I would do it. But it would be, he's said, other students have asked me to act in their films and it would be an unfair advantage yeah. if I appear in one and not another. Yeah. yeah. Um, he did go in and have a look at the paintings. So he did find the paintings really interesting. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I mean, I've, like I've kept in touch with Joel since. And yeah. Anytime it's gone into a film festival, you know, I'll send him a message saying like, "Oh yeah, people in whatever Russia saw yeah. you know the film." Amazing. Um, and anytime, any if I know anybody going to Cuba, I'll sort of insist that they take oil paints <laughs> <laughs> and go and visit him. So there's been sort of this like string of people who um, have turned up in this town, just looking for the barber to give him oil paints. Like yeah. Um, which is nice, actually. Yeah, yeah, amazing. Um, is that a, is that online? I'd love to see it. Um, it is online. It's on. I think I just have it as a private link. A very bad, you know. Like once I've made something, I'm just so shit at getting it out there. Yeah, because you kind of your your energy is already in something else, you know. Yeah. Um. Yeah. And I'm yeah, I'm not good with um. I don't know, chasing those things up after. Yeah, yeah. I think I spent like a brief period. I was like, oh, I'll see if I can get somebody to publish it somewhere like yeah um and then just you kind of move on to other things yeah i do have yeah i do have links they're they're private i'll send you one actually i should maybe this is like my <laughs> motivation to just make it public but yeah yeah well it's hard to know when is the time as well if it's 
if it's fully done, it's ah, yeah. festival and all that. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, it's been in a few festivals, but I didn't even that. Like, I didn't yeah. chase that too much because, I don't know, you're just kind of like spending a lot of money on totally. submitting the festivals. Yeah, like. yeah. yeah. Um, it's the kind of thing, just, uh, well, you get to a certain point. They Like, you, you do that for a while, but, like, uh, yeah, I've seen people just burn out and spend fortunes, like, fortunes on festivals. Like, yeah. Yeah, but, I mean having done the music video stuff it's so much more satisfying to finish a project and then put it online yeah. and then yeah. people see it and they whatever they like it or they hate it yeah, or they yeah. you know, will be very vocal about it in the YouTube comments yeah. um, but then you can move on like you're not yeah. it's not a very satisfying part of the process to kind of having made the thing to sort of try and you know foist it around yeah, on yeah. people like yeah. do you find the music videos a very free form of expression. Um, I suppose it depends. Depends oh. who you're working with. I mean, I think I've been very lucky um, in that, uh, like the the main work that I've done has been through Rough Trade Records. Yeah, and they've just early on adopted an approach of not giving me any sort of free freely in the kind of the bands I'm working with. They're not. Um, too sort of prescriptive in terms of what they want. Yeah. Sort of we're happy not to kind of hand over the reins. I've been lucky in that way. I, I mean, I've done a few things for other labels, and I've definitely noticed the difference because you kind of you have the idea, and then they go like, "Yeah, yeah that's great. Mm. We'd really like the lead singer to be in it and mm. acting." And you're like, "Well, can your lead singer act?" And then they go like, "No, but you know, <laughs> we want them to be in the video." Um, <laughs> So yeah, so I sometimes find that situation a bit awkward because you're kind of trying to then like mold an idea around yeah. Um, yeah. what other parties want, and then sometimes the you know the singer or the band members don't necessarily want to be in the thing. Yeah. But from a label point of view, they want them to feature, mm. and then you're into kind of the territory of like, well, is this just a commercial? Like, am I just being told what to do? And then it becomes way less, just like way less satisfying to yeah. do that. Like yeah. Do like making, yeah, it's basically you end up making an ad for a piece of music mm. to like the sort of prescriptions of like somebody in a marketing department, uh, which is not to say that they're like, there are obviously people who work in marketing departments in record labels who are brilliant. Um, but like the best people I've worked with are the ones who sort of go like, you know what you're doing. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you yeah. Run with it. Yeah. Or, you know, and support you in doing that. Yeah. Um, yeah. As opposed to sort of telling you what to do. Yeah. And I know budgets are small, but, like, is it, is it a, do you think, like, is it a good way for filmmakers to kind of make these kind of micro short films? Like? Um, depends, I suppose. Um, the budget thing is not something that necessarily affects my attitude towards doing it too much because mm. it's like you know some of my f the favorite things I've ever made have been done for 200 euro yeah, <laughs> yeah, 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 where yeah. the things sometimes like I've enjoyed the most yeah um, and I think money coming into the equation then adds a certain amount of responsibility mm -hmm. um, I mean probably one of my favorite things I've ever made was like uh, I made a video a couple of years ago for my friend 
Stephen, he's a bank participant. Um, I think he paid for a raincoat. I was like, my raincoat's ripped, so I need a new, <laughs> I need a new raincoat. <laughs> and I need a bus ticket to West Cork. And yeah. then I spent four days in West Cork filming snails on my own. Do you know? Right. Yeah. Like, very contentedly. Yeah. And then at the end, we sort of subtitled what the snails were going through. Right. Um, you know, and I'm still as happy with that yeah. video made for the price of a raincoat as I have been with stuff that was made for like 10 grand or something. Yeah, yeah. Um, and like, well, yeah, once you're dealing with like a sort of a budget, then, you know, you have kind of other responsibilities to like crew and cast, et yeah, cetera. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, my sort of ideal projects are the ones where I can just sort of get on with them on yeah. my own, on my own time. Like. Yeah. Um, and I've probably gone the route now of like simplifying when it comes to doing music videos. Like I'm gotten more into the idea of doing sort of like single takes or like a very simple yeah concept like the, i think the last music video i made was um for lancome and it was sort of by design something that i could just do on my own just wandering around with like a sort of telephoto lens and i just film sort of shots of feet in different people doing different things and you know just sort of it was more like a photography project or something where you kind of look at you know what do people's what does the body language of someone's feet tell you about them? You know, yeah. are they nervous? Are they waiting for somebody? Um, and then also like how they're dressed. Like you know, you sort of start to imagine like what's what the sort of in totality of that person is. Yeah. Um, I mean, I kind of like the idea of kind of setting myself sort of more limited um, scope kind of concepts like that. Yeah. Um, rather than trying to do these sort of like. <laughs> big budget Grand. extravaganzas yeah like. yeah yeah um and yeah because I've, I've done a few myself and yeah it's it can be really yeah kind of liberating to work on but yeah it really depends on what the constraints are and who like you know what what it's actually wanted for i think that's always mm. like what what do you actually what do you want to I think because we, we've I've done those ones where I've done I did one years and years ago where uh, it didn't end up getting used because the lead singer I think the record label were really trying to push him as like a sex symbol at the time and that's not what we were doing. <laughs> we hadn't lined up at all there like so it just got dropped you know I mean I think they work the best when you know someone gives you a piece of music and they just sort of want your artistic response to mm. Like, okay, how does that make you feel? What do you, what do you visualize when you hear that? Whereas, it's very, it's impossible to really figure out, you know, what yeah. say like a band of four people, like what they, yeah, each individually imagine, and then how that, how does that, where does that sort of overlap? Yeah, in terms of what you can actually make. Yeah. Um, and like, it doesn't have to be. You know, it's not that I'm kind of setting out to represent the song. It's like this is just my response to the song or this right. is what it makes me yeah. feel or this is what I see when I hear the song Yeah, and it's not sort of trying to be an all-encompassing statement about what the song is about because I, I don't really get into like lyrical yeah like I sort of I'll definitely hear things in the lyrics that I latch on to but I, I don't really get into conversations with people about what something is actually about yeah because um, I think it's not it's not really necessary because the person who's made the song has already sort of tried to capture some feeling and they're articulating something in a sort of an abstract way. 
it actually kind of deflates it if you're like specifically what do you mean when you say this line yeah because then you're just into um like there's only one answer to that question like there's only one image that accurately depicts the exact thing they're talking about um whereas you when you can just keep it in the abstract it just opens it out and like sometimes you i don't know i find i've been lucky where i'll come up with an idea and you know the person who wrote the song will kind of go like it's not really what it's about but actually there's a elements of it that actually yeah are very true to yeah you know what's going on in the song or something yeah um What's your, you mentioned you're writing or you're working on a feature. What's your approach to, to writing at oh, this stage? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> very sporadic. Right. Um, I mean, I love researching. Um, yeah. And things like I get so sort of caught up in that. that I just like, I'll keep ordering books and I'll keep going through books with like a underlining bits of text. And then I'll copy the bits of text into a notebook. And then I try and condense the notebook down into the really essential notes. Um, and I get really carried away with that stuff and go down all these sort of rabbit holes um, of research and then I write in like a very very short blast and uh, like I'm working with a script editor at the moment he's really great um, and you know when we first sort of ch- started chatting about process you know, she was like so what's your <laughs> like at this like what have you done up to this point like how's the process been and I was like I just sort of thought about it for a long time and then over the course of 48 hours just like did 60 pages of the script right. and that's kind of where it was at when yeah she came into the into the project yeah now i've since gone back and rethought some of those the stuff going on those pages but it's much more like that where i just sort of build up the energy to sit down and do it i find like the actual mechanical process of sitting down um like the process of sitting down at a desk on a computer I'll put it off as long as I can basically <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and so uh, you know I really need to just commit I think like a block of days together to doing it like yeah. I think it's just the way I yeah work I'm not Is really it, like a sustained uh, I it, it's it, it's that thing of yeah trying to get the time and when there's stuff that needs to be done because you're you're all, you always seem to have lots of projects and there's always like actual physical stuff to be done would that be right yeah um and i even i don't know i find it very hard to focus if i know there's some other things going on in the background so i'm only gonna now like in the next sort of week or so for the first time in ages now i have like days that there's not other things either starting or ending in the background like so Um, I'm hoping I can get the next sort of draft done quite quickly. That's the thing. Like I can do the like the, the like the physical element of like typing it up. Like yeah, I can do it quite quickly. It's just the time is more spent kind of resolving problems, and you know, which is why it's been good working with the script editor because mm. I think when you're writing, you maybe put off answering questions about your characters that you don't. Yeah. Because you don't have the answer to them, yeah. and then someone else is yeah. going like, well, "Why is this person doing this? Like, yeah. what's their? What do they want out of this?" Um, and it forces you to focus on the awkward questions and resolve those. So I kind of, I just feel like now, recently, I'm at the point where I've figured out the answers to 
some really sort of fundamental character things. You yeah. know, I knew what I knew who the characters were, but I didn't quite know what why they were doing the things they were doing. Yeah. And I, yeah. I've only just kind of recently um figured that out. So now I think I'm in a position to spend another, you know, forty yeah. hours like <laughs> smashing away on a keyboard like. Um and how do you like you know, how are you at kind of the 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 game in inverted commas of like, you know, oh. getting along <laughs> in the industry and all that, you know? Very bad. Um <laughs> I mean I don't know. I mean my approach to it has always just been just do the work and then people either respond or don't respond to the work, but yeah. I, I don't really um you know, I'm very bad at sort of like telegraphing the work to people. Right. Um or like feeling like I'm trying to like sell people on it or something. I'm not great at. Right. Um but also I mean I'm just not <laughs> um it's just going to sound like a real misanthrope, but like I don't really go to, even like during normal times, like I'm not really someone who goes to like events. Yeah. Um, I don't, I, no, I'm, I don't really feel like I'm in sort of necessarily like a filmmaking community. Like there's mm. like friends, because I'm friends with people who are filmmakers. Yeah. Um, But it's more that I would hang out with them because we get along. Yeah. secondary to that maybe they're also on film yeah yeah and obviously there's like certain overlaps and things we can talk about but um yeah i've never really like sort of um sought out to yeah be in like the game as such also yeah. i just find other like people who do other jobs just like way more interesting because i like yeah um you kind of know a certain amount of the ins and outs of what the people's roles are maybe in whatever sphere you're in it would be the same like if you were a chef like you would yeah. know a certain amount about what other people do so it's not really that interesting to you yeah yeah, yeah. um to talk about like yeah soup preparation or something yeah um whereas if i was sat next to somebody who was working in that field i would find it very interesting yeah um because yeah. i don't know anything about it yeah um i think if you hang around only filmmakers like it's you know it's a hard business it's hard to get it to get along and nobody's getting there quick enough and all that but I think it's really important to have friends who are, are nurses or whatever you know who are other like there's lots of hard jobs like much harder jobs kind of thing yeah and I mean even you know because you can kind of get into these a train of thought where you're like oh you know what how, how important especially like during the pandemic you're like how important is what I'm doing and then actually you realise that for people who work in other is like the value of entertainment is very high mm. um, and so like within the sort of like the ecosystem of what people need in their life um, you realise actually filmmaking is and music yeah. like you, and you see that over the last while like how important those things are mm. because people work difficult jobs or because people are going into hospitals and you know treating people all day yeah. and then they need some entertainment yeah, to like counterbalance that, like, um, but yeah, I think it's, it gives you kind of like a healthy sense of perspective, you know, when you're talking to someone who's like, you know, the worst thing that happened to me today is, you know, somebody uh, didn't like the color of, you know, t-shirt I picked for the <laughs> actor, uh, <laughs> and then somebody else comes at you with, you know, something that's happened in their work that's much more, yeah, intense or has like much sort of 
bigger consequence this and you go okay fair enough but yeah, yeah, <laughs> maybe, yeah. maybe, that, yeah. maybe that wasn't that important to begin with yeah um yeah i mean like i don't know the, the, the thing of the game it's just not something i, I feel i've participated in mm. that much and you yeah. know when i work with people it's because i i like their work or they like my work or, you know it's very yeah. yeah i think you have to kind of you have to respect the people you're working with um and so like I, it doesn't really you know things that are maybe more um have prestige to them not necessarily something that interests me yeah. you know like you could have a very you could have prestige for doing something that I don't think it's very good. Now yeah. I have very probably niche tastes compared to other people and you know. Yeah. I'm kind of in the weirder end of the pool. Yeah. Um but I don't know. Like the I I kind of um I would hate to participate in a way that was sort of false or something. Mm. Or have to sort of misrepresent yeah. myself. Yeah. And I just to me, it would be like a mis, um, misuse of energy. Yeah. Um, when I should be just making work. Yeah. And I suppose maybe that's where the role of the like a producer comes in. Mm. Where like having those kind of partnerships are really important because there's somebody else who can kind of pick up the ball then, mm. and you know, yeah. tell people about your work and you know, like yeah. for me with the films, like there's no one. Yeah. Going like okay now that now that we have it and you've made it like let's people to watch it like yeah um and so i think for a certain kind of uh, for someone like me who's maybe um not great at that stuff you need a sort of creative partnership where someone who's like very on it as far as like yeah. okay this is where your film needs to go and you yeah. know that's kind of what i'm working towards now mm. the feature film is you know working with a producer who just knows what to do with it and knows yeah. how to get it in front of people and yeah. how to get it made yeah um because i just would be kind of lost i think yeah 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 <laughs> yeah is there any lesson that you wish you'd learned sooner um hmm yeah good question um like it wouldn't be anything technical because i don't i think all that stuff you can learn mm. You know, like, literally, you can go on YouTube and learn how to yeah. color grade or whatever. You know, yeah. any sort of technical thing you need to know. Yeah. The knowledge is out there. Um, I think I'd maybe wish I felt more comfortable kind of standing up for myself in certain situations earlier. Right. Um, or it's even, like, a sort of establishing boundaries of what someone can expect from you. And I think it's... This is maybe less about the sort of creative aspect of filmmaking because I've never really had a hard time kind of fighting my corner mm. creatively. Um, but I think when you're in the world of like freelance anything in Ireland, like like dealing with money is always like this like horrible, difficult <laughs> process. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I think I was probably... You know, up until relatively recently, a bit naive, like a combination of like a bit naive about it, but then also a bit sort of underconfident about having the feeling like I had the license to impose boundaries around what I'm doing. Yeah. Um, 
and I look back on stuff I've done where I just was like, you know, completely run ragged by working on something. Yeah. Um, in situations where I, you know, I shouldn't have been. And also, I think as a director, um, and as a producer, you kind of need to be aware of that with other people as well. And you kind of learn as you go along. It's like, you know, you have to, especially if people are sort of like shy about discussing those things, like you need to kind of help them establish what the boundaries are or what you can expect from them, you know, mm -hmm. uh, reasonably. Something that I think if I, if I could have recognized that I wasn't good at that earlier on, probably would have saved myself a lot of time or probably would have ended up focusing my time on more important stuff, yeah. I think. Yeah, yeah. That's a good answer. <laughs> 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 um, well, we better leave it there. Thank you so much. I uh, really enjoyed chatting to you.